Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. often a time of reflection and looking at what brought meaning to our lives. As we look into the year ahead, we look at what we want to create in our lives and what will bring us continued meaning. Here at The Spark, we want to continue to bring you the most elevated and enlightening conversations to help bring about your best life. Tonight, my conversation is with Emily Rapp Black the author of Poster Child, A Memoir, and The Still Point of the Turning World, which was a New York Times bestseller. A former Fulbright scholar, Emily was educated at Harvard University, Trinity College, Dublin, St. Olaf College, and the University of Texas, Austin, where she was a James A. Michener Fellow in fiction and poetry. I'm thrilled to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Oh, thanks for asking me. So I've known you, I was just thinking about this, for over 20 years now. And whenever I think of Emily Rapp Black, I think of enduring strength, deep beauty, and an amazing ability to be one's own outrageous, authentic self. Thank you. But you have had this amazing life journey that has been really cool to be privy to over the past couple decades. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with you, can you talk just a little bit about your background, where you're at now? Yeah, so I was uh, raised in Wyoming, mostly in Laramie, and my parents still live in Cheyenne. So they're still of the area. And so I guess my books come directly out of my life experience, because they're memoirs, at least the ones that I'm working on now. I'm also a fiction writer, but Primarily at the moment, I'm writing on fiction. So the first the first book, Poster Child, is about coming of age with a disability. So I had an amputation when I was four as a result of a birth defect. And so it's about kind of the journey of being a woman in a very small town in rural West where there was no one else like me um, and trying to come to terms with that non-normative body. So my interest in sort of disability studies and, and non-normative bodily experiences obviously stems from those experiences as a child growing into an adult. So that's definitely influenced my path first as an academic in theology and thinking about like how we envision the body in religious context and then also now as more of an advocate and working in medical schools as a teacher of medical narratives, which is a new category of non Yeah, what, what is that, Emily? Well, medical narratives, it's, it's kind of a misnomer. In some ways, it's like what memoir used to be. So memoir wasn't necessarily like a, a thing that people wrote until Frank McCourt wrote Angela's Ashes in 1998. And that book exploded and everyone read it. And they were like, oh, we need a new marketing handle. It's a memoir. Like people have been writing memoirs since like days of yore, which is not a specific time period. <laughs> but since people have been like scratching on walls, like making pic- 
picture. So it's not a new, it's the oldest form, form of written and oral expression in the world. So it's not a new thing, but the way that it's marketed is a definitely a different animal. So um, so medical narratives is, is then a subgenre of nonfiction. So in the last decade, a little bit longer, a lot of doctors have started writing about not their patients, um, but about their experiences of being doctors. Um, and part of that, I think, stems from people are living longer. There's a lot of uh, research and innovative therapies that didn't exist changing all the time. So there are more stories because people are just more engaged in in living longer lives, basically. So doctors have been writing about that. And, and then patients started to write about that, too. And so we're like, oh, we have all of these stories about you know, illness and body. So let's call it medical narratives. But the reality is everyone's in a body. So everything is, in my opinion, kind of a medical narrative, like, right. So you might be in a normative body, but you won't be forever because you'll age or you'll get hit by a bus. Hopefully not. Um, or you'll get an illness or a disease and, and you know, so, so it's a little bit of a misnomer in my opinion, but Primarily, it's about people who've had experiences of illness or of all ilk, all kinds of illness, or some kind of a disability experience or some kind of experience that shocks them into a kind of different category in terms of what bodies look like. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and I'm curious, I mean, could it also be like a mental health? Yeah, yeah. There's a book called, um, I have not read this book. I want to. It's on my list, ever growing list of books to read, Brain on Fire, which is a woman talking about her experiences being met, I think bipolar. Okay. So yes, it's also a friend of mine wrote a really great book about having a particular kind of bipolar disorder called liar. His name is Rob Roberge. Shout out to Rob. And so that, so yeah, people are starting to write about those too. So it's not just physical. It's a good question. It's not just physical stuff. It's mental, mental, um, mental conditions. I don't want to say illness because I think that's also a bit of a misnomer. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I like that. What, so poster child then would have been classified as a, mer- a medical mm-hmm. narrative. Well, and I was annoyed because I, well, first time, this is like 2006, and I found it like in the bookstore somewhere, I think in LA, LA like in medical narratives, like, I want that there. I want it in memoir. And now I'm like, yep, that's narrative 2006. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's definitely become a thing. But like when I was writing it, it was just like the story I was telling. So it just shows you the ways in which things get categorized, changes their sort of cultural movement, their cachet, so to speak. So, yeah. And if if we can go just a little bit deeper into the book, I mean, one of the things that you say that that you're talking about in that book is really basically like embracing who you were, embracing your body and being fully a woman no matter what. So, I mean, can can you speak some about that? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I would two-part answer to that. The first is sort of my beef, if you will, with the whole body positivity movement, which didn't really exist when I was growing up. It was basically like, if you didn't have, you know, that right Esprit sweatshirt and blonde hair and a tan, you were kind of like, not cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, we were there was no in- interwebs, as my parents would say. There was no sort of like outer reaching sort of understanding of what beauty was or what could it could be those things have changed as a result of that like the instagram and there's a whole whole, this whole movement of like love you must love your body it's it's like and i i find that hard to sort of grapple with because what like does anyone ever really love their body every day No. no and it's really hard to do that as a woman because we're constantly like you just don't ever get a break from like what you're supposed to do look like be feel so my thing is like, well, if you if you just are supposed to love your body all the time, then you don't. It's like one more thing you fail at doing. 
And it's just like not helpful. So I sort of feel like body awareness or just body, this is it, itness. I mean, you only get one, so you have to be able to manage it. So body management, which is way less sexy than body positivity. Uh, no, but maybe so, maybe body yeah. acceptance, you know, really. Body acceptance and just saying like, okay, I don't have to like it, but I'm just going to sit with that. And maybe some days I do, and I don't have to like be spouting love of myself all the time. Like there's a real, I think there's a real problem with that. I think it creates undue pressure for people. I really and, like that. I really like that you bring awareness to that because I think that that's really true. You know, that, that we're bombarded with that thing of like, now you've got to just be body positive. And, you know, I, I can speak from my own experience that for me at, you know, 50 years old, it was really positive to be able to look in the mirror and go, you know what? I'm okay. Yeah. It wasn't like I had like pom poms and I was like, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm incredible. Yeah. I mean, exactly. It's like, you can't really like, it's, it's just like not a reasonable expectation to think that you're going to have the pom poms every day. It's like, you know, sometimes you're like rocking this and other days right. you're like, Ugh. you know, so, I mean, no, that's, it's just like, I don't know. There's gotta be some kind of a middle ground. I don't know. I think that's perpetuated in part by social media because people are always like, look, it's a filter. They're like no chins ever. Right. Right. And, and flawless skin. And yeah, yeah exactly. I, mean, I do it too. I'm like, I'm not going to take that without a filter. And like, you know, people, were, people have all said to me like, you know, oh, you know, you should, you should be more like, you know, showing your body. And I'm like, um, no, do, do you understand that I grew up with like Protestants? Like we don't do that. Like, no. Like my dad would be horrified. My parents would be horrified. Like, so we're all comfortable with this different, like, and I'm also like old, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a millennial. Like I didn't grow up with those kinds of sort of platforms for self presentation. The other thing I'll say about that though, is I did have a Reiki, which is sort of an energy work, uh, Reiki woman work on me in the early 2000s when I was working on Poster Child in Pennsylvania. And she, she was awesome. And she talked about this notion in Reiki of uh, the energy body. And it's basically like if you have a, if there's a leaf on the ground and part of the leaf is torn away, there's still like the shadow of what was there. Like there's still like, there's still a wholeness in the brokenness. And I really liked that analogy a lot with her because when she would do Reiki on me, she'd say like, you know, I feel a lot of energy in the space where your leg was or where the prosthetic is. Like it also has its own energy. So that, that was actually like, I was like, oh, that's body positivity. It's just like, well, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful because it's like, I'm a whole person. Yeah, yeah. And that's a Buddhist notion too. Like a person is whole and perfect in their whatever, however they manifest. So that, that, that I think is just someone who grew up, you know, solidly sort of Judeo-Christian understandings, which are quite limited when it comes to what is beautiful about bodies complicated too, by the idea of getting a perfect body in the afterlife. So I struggle with those notions because they're so not how I was raised. Like, it's not something I thought about until I was like 30. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my value system was kind of already there. Well, and it's interesting because I know you have a degree in divinity from Harvard. Mm -hmm. How do you think the, if you will, um, spiritual element mm -hmm. comes into play or our spiritual journey in accepting our bodies? What, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah. I mean, there's a, when I was in divinity school, which was uh, like 20 years ago, ah, um, long time ago, uh, there was a, a lot of, um, feminist epistemologists working then. So basically epistemology is how we know things. And feminists were saying like, we know things differently from a feminist perspective. Like we need to, to understand that these, these sacred texts were written by dudes, like several dudes in, 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 in cahoots with one another. <laughs> and right. The women's, 
for, you know, like there's a gospel of Mary, which my mom loves, that's her name. But that is like not considered part of the Bible because like a woman wrote it. So there's all of these kinds of political, social, cultural, political stuff happening when it comes to the directives that the Bible gives you about what's a good and right body. Um, and it's also written in like pre medieval times when like you lived to be like 20, if you were lucky. So, so what we, so what feminist epistemologists were doing and feminist theologians were saying like, these are really interesting books and like, we believe there's like sacredness in them, but we need to revision how we understand a woman's role and how we understand like when women aren't present they're just not written in, but they are present. They're just not acknowledged. So that was a big thing in the late nineties. Um, also disability studies and the intersection with theology saying, um, there was a great scholar who I worked with who was, who died about 10 years ago. I think Nancy Eastland, who had a book called the disabled God, which totally blew my mind when I read it. I still remember reading it in the mid nineties, my parents' house in Denver and she was basically like, you know, Jesus is the ultimate disabled human. He's broken. He's broken on the cross. Like, and if that's like the the pinnacle moment of Christianity, the crucifixion, then he is like like uh, a sort of early disabled role model. Um, and then she kind of goes into this other social cultural explanation of that. All of this is to say that. Um, divinity school like divinity school in that sense or how i understood it was a very radicalized it wasn't radicalized like we weren't it wasn't the 60s god's sake but it was the 90s everyone was wearing khakis it was very civilized <laughs> but it was um it was a very it was very much a, an effort to say like we can still find meaning in these texts and these stories but we don't have to say we don't have to live according to them like specifically live by them like no one's going to live according to Leviticus because it's not sustainable. Hello. And one dude tried to do it and wrote a book called the year of living biblically and like nearly died. So like, you know, that there's that. And so, yeah, I mean that, that has definitely influenced me a lot is, is this, this theological stuff. And partly it's because I think the Bible as the best selling book of all time and the earliest, you know, the earliest stories that we have written down are interesting and actually good stories. Like I learned how to write by reading these stories. Wow. Uh, they did not drop from the sky. I don't believe but you know they were they were collaborations among people trying to make sense of the world. That's what stories do. Right. And so it sounds like you had to then reinvent if you will or reimage from the Bible your mm -hmm. own vision of what it was to be a woman, what it was to, you know, like you said embrace yeah. your own physicality. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so do you do you feel like that's that came into play in writing your book? Yeah, I do. I feel like I was trying I was struggling to sort of re re tell that story from a more nuanced perspective. But I also say like, you know, I was very much influenced by people who are not necessarily have disabilities, like physical disabilities, but who are not white, like I'm white, like, you know, a lot of the stakes for me are lower. So the intersectional feminism is also really important. Like if you are an African American woman using a wheelchair, that's going to be a different experience as a disabled person than me as a white woman who, who uses a, a leg to walk. Like, so that intersectionality, um, I didn't really think of it then, but it, it's, writing Poster Child helped me find my way into that because in so doing, I was introduced to other people who were struggling with body issues that didn't mirror mine because nobody can really mirror yours, but 
that had some overlap, but were also quite different. So yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like that was, I mean, I, I struggle with the term spirituality because I don't really know what that means. I mean, I definitely, so I'm not religious. Like I subscribe to any doctrine of a kind, which, you know, obviously is not in keeping with what I was brought up to do. But I mean, if I was anything, I'd probably be like Buddhist and maybe a little Jewish. Like I can't just claim a bunch of religions either. So I don't know. I think it's like, I, I don't know. I'm on the fence about a lot of that stuff. Unsure, I suppose. Well, yeah. And I guess that's, that's you know, in my own definition, when I refer to spirituality, yeah. in my own mind, I think of it kind of exactly though like that as an eclectic gathering of what yeah. speaks to you. Yeah. yeah. You know, what, what what's your own inner truth? Yeah. Or where you find beauty, like where you find meaning. No doubt. Well, meaning like and if you I mean, listen, you know, William James wrote, you know, the varieties of religious experience. He could have been spiritual experience like he has a kind of, Whoa! you know, everyone's had that. You could have it in your shower. You could have it in the car. You could have it. I mean, there's no he's very like Christian about it. But there's also ways to understand it where you have moments that you can't quite explain. Yeah. People have that nature. People have it in nature. They have it like they meet someone and they have this moment where time just takes on a different dimension. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that could all be described as spiritual. But say it was religious. No, it's not religious. It's and yeah, it's, so when you're saying nice. that, it's like these almost like sacred moments. Yeah. And it has yeah. nothing to do with religion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it can. So, I, and I do want to clarify that it can have to do with religion for certain people. Yeah. One of the things I'm curious though is what, what would you recommend as resources for young women, and not maybe not even young women, women in general, that are struggling with body image and kind of struggling with this ability to, we said, accept themselves and, and not have to be the cheerleader constantly of their own body, but also moving towards acceptance? Yeah, I would say get off social media for like a prescribed amount of time because there's just so many triggers there. And it's hard to do, especially if, if you're of a certain age, like getting off social media is like, I mean, I find it hard and I certainly didn't grow up with it. So there you go. It's it's, it's addictive and and fun too. It's not just all bad. Or, and I, I would say too, like one of the things that's really helped me has to be has been physical activity and being present because I think when you have, or this is true for me, I can't speak for anyone else, but when you have a different kind of body, there's a sort of practice that one does of dissociation from it um, because it's kind of painful to sit in some of the realities of, of having, being stared at or being thought of as lesser or just feeling like crap. So what's helped me has to be, is to be active in my body and to set challenges, physical challenges. And of course this is impossible for everyone as physical challenges that will allow me to feel proud. And I, I learned this on the Peloton bike <laughs> from my favorite instructor, Christine Dercolet, who has been huge for me. And this is in the last year. By saying like, wow, you didn't think you could do this, but now you're doing it. Wow. So instead of talking about how hard it is, just figure out a way to make it work for you. And, and that can be applied not just to physical exercise, but to everything. I didn't think I could go out today and, and deal with people's like reactions to whatever is going on with me. But I did. And I did it for five minutes. And it wasn't the best thing I've ever done, but I did it anyway. I mean, that kind of stuff. Yeah, not about overcoming, but just saying like, I'm just gonna like continue to like be engaged and be present in how I'm feeling and be in my body. That's really hard for me. Doesn't work in yoga because I'm just like, what are we doing? And like mm -hmm. my head's too, I'm too much of a monkey mind. I do it, but I like hate it. 
<laughs> but I still do it. Um, but the, but the, the, the sort of like sweaty stuff allows me to feel like I'm dissociating, but I'm actually very present. So yeah. it's kind of a bad habit and a good habit. So, so your recommendation would be people getting physical, getting centered in their body. Spending yeah. time inhabiting whatever body they've been brought yeah. here with. Yeah, and finding things like finding things that help them feel good instead of bad. Like some people don't like intense physical exercise, but they might like to go get more regular massages. You know, I mean, there's some yeah. ways to do it. And also read, read, read people's books that are that are writing about having different body struggles. Not to say like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not you, which is super unhelpful to say to someone, just FYI, for people who might be thinking that. Um, but to say like, oh, look, you know, here's a, here's someone who is doing something that looks really hard and it would be hard, but they're doing it. Like doesn't mean they're brave. It doesn't mean they're like exceptional. It just means they're like getting on with their life, which is what we do as humans. Right. They're willing to live actually on that edge that can sometimes be uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's yeah. kind of how we can challenge ourselves no matter what body, if we're able-bodied or, or not. Yeah. The world is uncomfortable. Like in the U.S., we have trouble understanding this because we're pretty comfortable most of the time. But most of the world is not. And they don't think about it. They just get on with it. Right. So really something to that and to embracing that yeah. paradigm. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So so moving on, your next autobiography came from an extremely painful and deep part of the journey for you. And you shared the loss of your beautiful and precious boy, Ronan, with the rest of the world through your book, The Still Point in the Turning World. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to share this amazing story? It wasn't actually a decision. It was more of a necessity. So one of the things that writing has always done for me, which may or may not be something that listeners will want to explore, has been to create a frame around an experience through words. And by doing that, there is release in the effort of the doing of trying to make sense of something. There, I mean, there's, you know, Tay-Sachs, my son died of Tay-Sachs, which is like the most hideous medieval disease. Like there's no sense in it. There's no meaning. There's, it's just bad. It's all bad. So it, it, it to me, it's like, if, if there's proof of evil in the world, like that illness is right up in there proving it. So when, when he was diagnosed and I knew that he would die in the next three years in, a, in an awful way, which he did, I was like, okay, I can either die, which I wanted to do many times, or I can try to grapple with this in the only way I know how, which is through words. So then I started writing like an absolute maniac and I couldn't stop. And I wrote thousands and thousands of pages. And it was the only time that I felt relief from the, the great sort of morass of sadness and grief and rage rage being maybe maybe the most prominent. I was so angry and being angry has always helped me. Right. I don't know. It's like so dysfunctional, but when I'm mad, I'm like, oh, yeah. Um, so I wrote and wrote and wrote. And I basically, my friend was like, I'm going to start a blog space. My friend Weber was like, you know, we want to know how you're doing. You're clearly not answering the phone because you never do. So we want to make sure you're okay. I'm going to set up this blog space for you. And you can just tell us what's going on. And then I started like writing these essays. She's like, okay, it's not quite what I meant, but all right. And so those essays became the book. So it became, you know, a live sort of medical narrative because every day was different. So obviously, because he was sort of declining, but he was also in his body and he was living and I was trying to give him moments. And so it was like a very intense, like crucible experience. And those tend to be really good material for story because the tenets of story are you put someone under pressure and see what they do. Mm. So a character 
in a novel, like they have to have some kind of problem or dilemma. So this dilemma was really large. And so, and then there was also no solving it. There was going to be no resolution. So I just started writing about it because it literally was the thing that the only thing that gave me comfort. And then it started to, I think, comfort other people because there's a whole community of people who are losing their children to various kinds of diseases or feel like they've lost them to drugs or they've lost them to, I heard from a lot of parents with children who have a severe autism and they can't connect with their kids. So that's a loss. So it was all, they became more in general about loss, specifically child loss. So it kind of opened up this whole community of people who were sad parents, I call them sad parents, but also, you know, very good parents and had joyful parents and loving parents. So yeah, it was, it wasn't necessarily a choice for me. It was basically, I could do this or just lie down and die, I felt. And it's, it's amazing to me, my experience and being in the mental health field for 30 years, I think oftentimes it is out of our deepest wounding or the places that were truly broken, then comes this gift. Yes. It's the only good gift of grief. Yeah. The only one. There's, that gives no other gifts, in my opinion, except this need to tell a story. And again, like this sort of the joy of the doing, um, not necessarily what you're writing, but just no. the act of being productive and creative is a balm. And how it then becomes that balm for others as well. I mean, yeah. that, that becomes the, the greater gift, if you will. Yes. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, I, what I love about memoir is that if you read a memoir by anybody, and this is how I've always felt about it, you, 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 their story lives in you, right? I mean, you may not remember it specifically, but you might flash on a memory of it randomly throughout your life. It's like in there forever. It's like no one can take that from you the experience of another person. And, and the more you read about other people who aren't like you or are like you, but have different experiences, the less likely you are to, when you meet someone that maybe has an experience similar to that, to say something a dumb or want to kill them. So in that way, it has a very ethical, moral yes. imperative. Like, yes. If I read, like I collaborated on a book with a woman called Khalid Abrohi, who is working to end honor killings in Pakistan. She's from a tribe in Pakistan where honor killings were a tradition and still in some sense are of women who violate these particular rules of the tribe. And, you know, I know nothing about like her life really. It's like, you know, a lot of poverty, um, it, very religious, completely different part of the world. But in reading that book, I feel like the next time I meet somebody from that part of the world or somebody who had grown, grew up that way, or next time I hear some like ridiculous thing on the TV about Islam and Muslims, I'm like, okay, but I know about Khalida and I know her, I know her story. I'm much less likely to buy into the predetermined stories that were fed about particular groups of people. And that to me is like a major success that's why memoir should exist because you don't if you don't know anybody who might be like like gay or transgender and you read their story you're not gonna be like oh let's do away with that you know it's, you just aren't because the story lives in you if you if you take it in Hey listeners, it's me, your hero, Corbin David Albaugh off of Corbin vs. The World. Do you want to meet me or any of the other famous faces from NOCO FM? Well, you're in luck. On January 19th and 20th, we are coming to PodCon 2 in Seattle, where we are going to be rubbing elbows with all of the podcasting elite, as well as our adoring fans and public. 
So be sure to get your tickets now and check us out. It's going to be a rip-roaring good time. Hope to see you there. love the phrase you know it's hard to hate people up close and it really is when when you can walk around in the interior of their heart for a while which you know through memoirs absolutely you have this insight all of a sudden into this person's experience and yeah yeah, exactly it's hard then to pan back and be like I don't like them you know it's like no my god there's places where I truly can connect with them and and that's exactly where empathy is built yeah it's you you illuminate one aspect of the human experience you illuminate, you bring all of it up, right? You, you, you're a human being, like we're all in these bodies, we're all mortal, we're going around, we're doing things, we're feeling things. And that's kind of the baseline truth. And it just gets cluttered by all of the other considerations and by the fact that we have overactive minds. Separate from the book maybe, and I, I don't know if you include this in the book necessarily, but what do you feel like all of that, two things, one is, what do you feel like that experience brought to you? What did what were the lessons? Um, well, I guess the lessons were twofold. So I learned first that like all bodies matter. That was important to me because Ronan never did anything. He didn't think, he didn't walk, he didn't talk, he didn't achieve. Um, but that didn't matter. And so my whole overachiever complex that I'd had my whole life was sort of like taken down a notch. Not all the way, but a notch, which was important, a big one, big notch. Um, it also taught me that uh, it, it broke open my writing life in this way. It broke open my life in a painful way, but it broke open my writing life in a happy way because it was. It, I felt like I was actually writing the stuff. I was bringing together all of my interests in an effort to tell his story. Um, so it felt like I felt like a, maybe a, a writer for the first time. Like I was not. I wasn't super confident. I just didn't care what people thought of me, which was like the best gift. I couldn't have cared less. Like I didn't care who read it. I didn't care if it sold. I didn't I didn't care. I mean, later I've been accused of using my son as a as a as a platform, but that is deeply unfair. And I think in a lot of a lot of people do this when you have a difficult experience and you write about it and they're like, oh well you you got something out of it. It's so incorrect because obviously I would trade anything to have not had that experience but that's the one I was given like against my wishes in every respect so I did something with it and I'm proud of that like I won't not be proud of that because it was really hard so it taught me so much about like what writing can really do and also it just released me from giving a crap or giving, I just don't care if people like my work. And that is like the best feeling. That's ultimate <laughs> freedom. Yeah, total freedom. And it, it makes me a better writer because I'm not like, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing so that people will affirm what I'm doing. Sometimes I get a little, my back up if I get a particular piece of criticism from someone I respect. But this whole like trying to be a writer so the whole world will love you is, I think that's how I was operating. It's just like, it was like the worst motivator. And it also, of course, didn't work. And now I don't care. And it's like, now I feel like, oh, that's a, I have an idea. I'm like, oh, I'm going to follow that. I don't worry if someone's not going to like it. Yeah. So that's great. That's yeah. Yeah. Good that's, job. that's awesome. And, and, you know, so and it is that lesson of loving little Ronan just for his essence. 
Yeah. There, there was yeah. nothing exterior that he had to be or had to achieve. Yeah. And no future Olympics. Whose kid is the smartest? Whose kid is the fastest? I just, and I don't care about that with my, whenever I find myself like participating in that with my daughter, I'm like, just let it go. She's alive. Baseline. Yes. She may have eaten goldfish and, you know, chocolate chips for breakfast. Maybe not a parenting win, but she's alive and it doesn't matter what she does. It, it matters that she outlives me to me and that she's happy. And I, I wanted to also say to you that, you know, the one time that I got to see Ronan at your mom's house and got to hold him and he just made these just sweet little, almost like cooing sounds. It was just this wonderful, and it was for me too, that lesson in being with Essence, yeah, um, which was really beautiful. Yeah. And no ego. Like for me, that was the weirdest thing about him. And the, the one of the things that he taught me was that he was... Like he didn't have the brain capacity to have ego. So in that sense, he was an enlightened, like he was happy because he wasn't thinking about whether or not he was happy. Like he didn't have to worry about accepting his body. He just did because he just didn't think about it. He just was, you know? So I mean, that is so powerful. That's, you know, what everybody's on their journey to return to. Yeah. Is that sense of just being. Yeah. Our minds are so much our allies and also our enemies. It's both and, right? And we can just get so trapped up in there. And he just didn't have those worries. And of course, he paid the ultimate price for it. He had a very short life. So that teaches us something too. Like enlightenment isn't necessarily like, if you're enlightened, you're not thinking about how good you feel because your ego's not around. Exactly. So we really are, like our egos are just like, they're not our enemies, but they're definitely like our, I don't know, I don't know, this is probably not correct, shadow selves, or they're there, and they're not always helping. Right. Well, and I think what you, you made a good distinction, though. It's not that we have to get rid of our egos or hate our oh. egos. It's like, you know, befriending them, having them in check, so to speak, because there's times where our ego can serve us. Yes, that's true. For yes. sure. And I think part of what I'm hearing you say is it's transcending the ego, because there, there's a deeper self. That's the important self to really be in touch with and, and yeah. make sure that that ego doesn't take over. And if we don't, you know, we don't want to live through that part of us by any means. 100%. Yeah. I mean, like as a writer, you have to have a certain amount of ego to do, literally to do anything. Like you have to say, I'm going to do this. I can do this. Right. But you also have to say, like, I'm not going to compare myself to other people. That's where the ego is a problem. And, and I definitely struggle. With, and all writers do. It's like, Every time the award list comes out, it's like, oh, you know, the big advances, like our, our world runs on like laddering people, like who's the best, who's this, who's that, who's the most money. Like that's when the ego really goes to freak out. But when it's like, I can do this, that's like a pure, I think that's a helpful ego thing. Like, I'm, or I'm going to try it. Like, and I'm not going to say I'm going to be the best at it, which was always my problem. It's I'm just going to do it to the best of my ability and see what happens and like be in the moments when it's happening. Instead of being like, what's the next thing, right? Yeah. I just, uh, I appreciate you sharing all this because I know that that's still a tender part in your heart. And, you know, I think that's an important piece to speak to parents that, you know, it's not that you ever get done grieving and it's not that Ronan is ever not with you. Yeah. And I actually, you know, for people who do grieve, I think there's this idea. I mean, I definitely felt this in the weeks after Ronan had died that they expected a certain kind of grieving mother and they were looking for the signs of, of what grief should look like. And I've had someone say to me, and I said some maybe not so nice things back. She was like, you know, you must have a really hard heart to be able to talk about Ronan without bursting into tears. And I was like, that is incorrect. And, and you are wrong, 100% wrong, because 
if I allowed myself to feel that every hour of every day, I wouldn't be able to live. Like I have to close it off and can only drop in there every once in a while because it is too painful. And if you, if you knew the loss, you would never have said that. And then she like scurried away. Probably thought I was horrible, but that's like a horrible thing to say. Another thing you never say to someone I think who is experiencing any kind of significant losses. Uh, oh, seeing you puts me into perspective. Rude. Also, I would die if I were you. Rude. Really rude. Yeah. Um, so, so people, that's like the blocks, the empathy. Instead, you can say like, that sounds really hard. I'll be thinking about you. Hey, do you need me to bring you a gallon of milk and then do it? Don't just say it. Do yeah, it. Yeah. So I, I think there's a real, like, we have trouble with empathy in this culture because we all expect, even if we don't expect, we half expect that our lives will kind of continue on this upward trajectory of success and money and happiness and beauty. And that's just like, not what happens. It's actually the other direction. <laughs> Okay, like everybody ages, like, you know, people, life is not like a a happy ride, like it and but we expect it to be. So when something's like a bump, we're like, Oh, I'm so glad I don't have a bump. It's like, dude, you might walk out of my house and like get hit by a bus and you have a lot of bumps. And you know, and that what that brings to mind to me is I remember when I first read Scott Peck's book, A Road Less Traveled. And, and one of the first lines is, life is suffering. And I remember when I first read this, this is like my 20s, I threw it across the kitchen room. You know, I, I was like, I don't want to read that. I, I feel not suffering. That. And so what was really powerful for me in going back to it later was really getting it that life contains suffering. And when we can kind of befriend that notion when we get it, then we actually, then we don't have to fear it and dread it. We can say, okay, yes, it also, it also contains amazing, wonderful, beautiful moments and everything in between. So if we can just ride the waves of life and know that that's okay, I think it, it makes the suffering more bearable because it won't be forever. Yeah. And then we can also be appreciative in those times where things are gliding or things are feeling okay. I mean, all of that, I feel like I learned too from hospice care workers and also my friend Lucy Kalanithes, whose husband wrote a book called When Breath Becomes Air. He died of lung cancer when he was 37 and he was a neurosurgeon, super overachiever. And he spent the last years of his life trying to find what you could find, what, what was the meaning of life, basically? Like, what meaning could he find in his remaining two years? And, you know, one of the things Lucy said to me, because they were doctors, they were like, when he got terminally diagnosed, they were like, well, that's what we do for a living. We're not shocked. We don't have the kind of why me moment. And they just continued on having a life when they could have a life together. And, you know, she said to me something that's always stayed with me. And I've written about it. And it's in my next book about, you know, those days were the most difficult days of my life, but they, every moment was saturated with meaning. Super true. Same with Ronan. Yeah. I don't want to live that way all the time because it's super exhausting, but that was like, yeah, you know, when people are dying, it's not necessarily a tragedy if you can reframe it. Like, what what do they really want to do in their remaining time? Like, let's not lie to people and be like, yeah, you know, in two years, you probably will climb Mount Everest. It's like, no, dude, you have liver cancer. Like, you're dying. Let's just accept the suffering. And that takes away the psychological suffering part of the suffering and just say, what can we do? Here we are. How can we right? be in this moment? How can we show How- up right now? How can we show up right now? And Ronan was a great teacher in that way because it's like, you know, okay, well, he seems to like feathers. So let's buy him a bunch of feather boas and like run around, like twist him up in feather boas. I hired every weird hippie person, which was really, there were a lot of them in Santa Fe to come and touch him and hold him and like give him weird like, massages. But that's <laughs> like shamans. Like I had a, you know, a, like a, a cellist who would come over and play because he liked music. Like 
you know, we played like bad rap music because he seemed to like it from what I could tell. Like, you know, it was basically like, what's today like? And that's what I learned from hospice. My hospice nurse, whose name was Cynthia, would call me and say, how is today? Mm. And I was like, yeah, dude, that is what everyone should be asking. Like, how are you today? Like, and really like wait for the answer. Yes. Yes. And how are you in this moment? Yeah. I know a lot of times, yeah, when when we're, whether we're grieving or whether we're just in our lives, if we can just tune in to the moment. Yeah. And hospice care workers also like don't freak out. Like, you know, when you, when you're with someone who's having a difficult experience to acknowledge it and then not freak out, like show up and like say the true things. So my friend Lisa, whenever I would call her and tell her what's going on with Ron and she just go awful. (laughs) Awful. Like I would just be babbling away and she would just say repeating the word awful. And I'm like, yes, it is awful. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Just like, listen to what I'm saying is that it is awful. And gosh, in this culture, we have such a problem with that. We want to fix it. Yeah. So to just, you know? like you're saying, just to be and to show up with whatever's there. So many things aren't fixable. Right. Including mortality. Right. Like we're all going there. <laughs> Newsflash, everybody dies. Right. You know, I mean, that was like, yeah, started with that. It was like, hey, everyone's dying. But it's true, you know, so. Louis C.K. had a shtick on that where, you yeah. know, at eight years old, he goes and, and tells the neighbor kid that we're all going to die and you're going to die and your mom's going to die. And 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 this kid's parents come back and his mother is horrified and she comes back yeah. and she says, I told my son, I am not going to die, you know, and it's like, oh yeah. my God, because we have such a problem with death. Yeah. And and the thing is, like, Charlie now knows who my daughter is for. And so she knows that she had a brother called Ronan and then he died. We don't say he went to heaven. We don't say he passed away. We just say he died. He had a really bad, he, his body couldn't live in the world. It was really sick. It was something no doctor could fix. It's something you can't get or have and you don't have it. Um, but he died. And so she tells everybody she meets now she's going through a phase where she's like, I had a brother, he died. Same as Ronan. And then she like scurries off to the handlebars and the parents are like, oh God. <laughs> random people at the park are like, ah! <laughs> but it's just like, it's a statement of fact. I mean, I don't think you, she's that sad about it. I just think she, she, it, and maybe she doesn't quite understand it, but she understands it enough that she sees him and like pictures of him and says, he's still around, but his body is gone. Like she's four. She gets like, it. Like she gets it more than than like grown people. Well, and, and there's something, you know, in this too that is so profound and I, I think so important in that if we can accept, yes, that that death is gonna be the end part of this journey for all of us, then maybe we value what's going on right now a little bit more and tap into this a little bit more. And kind of going back to what we were saying before, instead of demonizing everybody else who isn't like us or, you know, maybe a shade different than we are, to just say, you know, we're, we're all on this journey together. We're all not going to get out. There's and, no way and out. So let's connect and, and do the best we can here collectively together. Yeah. And, and, to tr- and like, listen, everybody... I mean, I, there was a oh, there was a great David Foster Wallace essay about he's like, Stan, I think it's called This Is Water. It might be a speech he gave. Oh, sorry, David Foster Wallace. He's no longer with us. But he was saying, like, I'm in the grocery line. And I'm just like, ah, this person's so annoying. And like, ah. and then like he starts talking to them. It turns out like their partner's dying of something. And they're like, they can't make a decision about which candy bar to buy because they're in like major like grief. And, and everyone has a story. Like, you just do not know what people are going through. You really don't know. And so whenever I'm, like, getting irritated about something dumb, some kind of champagne problem, 
um, like, ooh, it's taking too long to make my coffee or like my food is cold because who cares? At least I have food. Like, I think, oh, you just don't know what that person, you really don't know what they're going through. And you have an opportunity to try to like just not upset them further, <laughs> right? Or like, I often think it's really weird in this culture if you see someone on the street who's crying, everyone ignores them. That's so weird. And I used to too. And now I'm just like, hey, you know, I mean, it's just like, in other cultures, you would never do that. If someone was crying, you would like all cry together. You would like bring them into your home. like Because um, we don't want to feel it. You know, people are, so if someone's crying, it's easier to ignore it than actually engage and possibly risk hurting yeah. internally yourself. Right. I mean, one of the things I learned about empathy with Ronan is I'd have him in the front pack and we'd be in like the vitamin aisles, always in the vitamin aisle. And someone would come up to me and say like, oh, you know, there for the grace of God go I, like, I can't imagine. And I would, and I was like horrible. I would be like, do you think you're not going to die? Or I'd be like, do you have kids? And they'd be like, yeah, I do. And I'd be like, they might die. And I don't mean that. But I was basically just like, do not think, do not put me in a box. You do not know what my life is like. You don't know if it's horrible. You do no idea. Yes, there are horrible moments. And there are also totally ecstatic moments inside. It's both and. People just don't want to see the both and. They just want it to be like, a rom-com version of your life, which would be boring. So I, th yeah. I think this has been so, you know, such important perspective for people, both who are grieving and for people who are around people that are grieving. Yeah. And, you know, we're, we're almost out of time, but I, w I wanted to make sure that I asked you about what you're working on now, because I know that you're, you had mentioned really briefly talking about kind of a different uh, definition, if you will, for resilience. Yeah. And, and that may be being part of your new book. Yeah. So the book is basically, it's loosely about resilience. It's an examination of the word through the prism of my life, rebuilding a life after one basically burned to the ground. I got divorced from Ronan's father. I moved. I fell in love with someone while Ronan was dying. We had a baby all within two years. So it's basically like, and people kept saying to me, have been saying to me my whole life, in fact, Oh, you're so resilient. And I was like, okay, seriously, what does that word mean? <laughs> like, and I realized I had no idea and that people had been misusing it, I think, as a sort of synonym for strength, which and, and it's not. Um, it's, it's more about holding the both and. So it's, it's more, it's, it, it implies strength through weakness and vice versa. So that has been interesting. And then I'm also working on, a, and that, one, that book is called Sanctuary. And also I'm working on a book about Frida Kahlo that is not about art, like I'm not an art critic, but it's about my sort of long time fascination with her life story, which is kind of a mirror for mine, but not. And um, so that's more of a disability sort of re or a, a revisiting of that kind of aspect of my, my interests. So does, does this uh, next book also, does it feel like for you, it, it has a therapeutic quality? I mean, I, I, never, I never think writing is that therapeutic because it's so darn hard. I mean, I guess therapy is hard too. I think like if you're, if you're making art, you're making trouble for the reader, for yourself. And in therapy, I feel like you're going in there to sort of get some emotional regulation. Oh, that's what I do. Um, so in some ways, therapeutic isn't maybe quite the right word, um, but cathartic, sure, because it's like, and that's a much more complicated experience because it involves a lot of stripping away, which can be uncomfortable. So it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a happier story. My mom has been asking me 
my entire life to write a happy story. <laughs> write a happy story. This, I finally am trying. Um, and but it's also like there is no happiness without like you know there's no happiness without the threat of loss. Like you know my friend my friend Lisa again she would say like you know the day I got married to David was the happiest and saddest day of my life because I realized I loved him so much and that someday he'd die. I'm like oh you're my person. Have the one without the other and we just don't want to face it but it's just such a relief when you can it's like making an end of life care plan who knew who thought that would be fun but it's not fun but it's like it's it's interesting it's like oh yeah like i have agency here over the end of my life um just the way i have agency in some respect not always in how i live it of course some people are limited in that for other reasons that aren't due to their own agency but Anyway, the point is, yes, I found it cathartic. I found it. I mean, I always find writing useful. Yeah. Um, and it's meant to be. It's a job. It's it's um, it's meant to be of service. So that feels good. I mean, and, and I think you're right on. I mean, life exists in polar opposites. Yeah. And when we can embrace that. Yeah. I just officiated at a wedding of a good friend of mine who whose husband now was getting married having this beautiful celebration. And his daughter is in hospice care. Like she has, you know only a few weeks to live. Like he's so joyful and happy and his daughter is dying. Like it's like really heightened. Like that's kind of happening all the time. Lesser intensity is of course, but, but I think that was like, you know, that made the day really powerful and sad and also joyful and just all of the things It made it all of the things. I, that is when you can be in those moments and, and see both sides or understand both things, not sides, but both things, then let them land. Then you are living. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I have often said that if, if I had a bumper sticker, it would be life is messy. Yeah. And and when we can embrace the mess and that it's okay. Yes. I think exactly. we find a lot more fulfillment and meaning and we yeah. can be more present to that. Yeah. And it's okay. Exactly. If you want to have things when it's not messy, go see an action movie. That's what I do. Because it's basically like, oh, there's a car race. I wonder who's going to win. Probably the hot guy in like the fastest car. Oh, look, it's The Rock in another movie. He's probably going to save everybody. Like that that's like, you know, those are very simple stories. And it's like a, your brain cells kind of tumble out of your head for a while. And I think people need to give themselves permission to do that, too. And, and that's a part of self-care. So you have to understand what works for you. Like I spend so much time up here that I know I have to get in my body. I know I have to stop overthinking interaction movies so I find relief and release in different places so that when I do sit down to do my work I feel like I can marshal everything all the both and to do it which is not comfortable but it's necessary well I'm thankful that you're doing it I have loved your first two books and I can't wait to read the next one I just want to thank you so much Emily for being here with us and being a guest on the show thanks for asking me that was really awesome thank you This important and poignant conversation with Emily, I feel like one of the things that really stood out to me was this thing about embracing our own bodies and that that doesn't mean we have to love every part of our bodies every day and how oftentimes we set ourselves up and put even more pressure on ourselves if we feel like I have to love everything about me and everything about my body every day and that maybe it's more important that we just accept our bodies to come to a place where we accept our bodies and make peace with them. You know, I've found that just being grateful for the functionality of my body and its ability to move through time and space, to be thankful for how it serves me, has strengthened me and has helped strengthen my relationship with myself and move 
away from this unrealistic expectation of perfection. You know, all bodies matter, and the story of Ronan is so powerful, you know, that his beautiful essence is what mattered. It was not about him achieving anything, because he couldn't, and how we need to stop defining ourselves by what we achieve, but rather by the contents of our own hearts. Her story with Ronan moves me deeply because of my personal experience with Ronan, and as a mother, just leaning into that part in all of us, the importance of seeing whether it's each other, our children, our friends, and even strangers for their essence, for what I like to term the diamond sparkling heart inside each one of us. What touched me was Emily's ability to write as a way of freeing herself instead of looking to the whole world to approve of or love her. As she was writing Ronan's lessons to us all, they really were in about accepting ourselves and understanding how our ego can both serve us and hinder us. You know, part of life is suffering, and it really put me in deep thought tonight about extracting the meaning from our lives, whatever our circumstances may be. How is today? I think that was one of the important things when she talked about her friend that would call and say, how is today? So there's something beautiful about just embracing the moment wherever you are today and being with whatever you are feeling. You know, life can present itself in polar opposites. If we can just make peace with the moment, it brings this wonderful kind of sacredness to our everyday experiences. So as we move into the new year, I'm wishing you magical moments full of love and joy and also a deep acceptance and peace with the present moment. I look forward to our continued journey together. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.